Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And we will read verses 20 to 26. This is really the introduction to Jesus' sermon. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 6, verse 20 and following. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so, that, so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truth upon our heart. Charles Spurgeon wrote a book, he wrote many books, but he wrote a book that's little known, and uh, it's called Eccentric Preachers. And it's uh, a little-known book. He just tells stories about preachers and some preachers who are a little eccentric. He defines what he means by eccentricity. But in it, he talks um, about many stories. But I bought the book for one particular story. And it is this story that Spurgeon tells. And he says, I may not have all the details right, but as far as I recollect, this is the story. And he talks about a man whose congregation, and the whole city really, was not listening to the Word of God. They were... um, not showing up to church and things like that. And so he decided one Sunday that he would get their attention. And he brought an axe to church. And in the sermon, he, he took his axe and he started hacking the pulpit to pieces, uh, the desk, the sacred desk, until he destroyed the, the, the pulpit. And, um, and he said, we will continue to do this. We'll remove the, the pews and we'll remove all these the hymnals uh, until, uh, to show these people that they, um, they don't value these things, so we won't give them to them. And so Spurgeon tells this story, and here's, uh, here's his comment after telling the story. Spurgeon says, quote, The astonished folks went home and spread the amazing news, and in a very short time, the place was thronged. You say, this was an eccentric man. Well, I do not justify his proceedings, but I judge that he knew his own way about better than I could better than I could have shown it to him. After all, he was only sacrificing a few boards, and at that small cost, he broke through that indifference which more costly methods might have failed to touch. (laughs) So, Spurgeon's like, I don't know if I would do that, but it worked. It's kind of pragmatic. Um, Well, introductions are meant to secure the attention of the people and to orient them to the text and its point. 
And uh, I don't know if this man oriented his people to the point of the text. I don't even know what his text was, but he certainly secured their attention. And as we come to this sermon of Jesus, we come to the front porch of it. We come to the introduction. And it's hard to find a better sermon introduction than this one that Jesus gives. It grabs our attention. It orients us to the point of his sermon. It is an incredibly powerful introduction. And no doubt, words spread rapidly, and the crowds continue to gather around Jesus, having heard his preaching. This is an incredibly powerful introduction. He begins his sermon by placing everyone in humanity into two categories. Two categories, the blessed and the judged, the woe, those who have woes pronounced over them. Now, this isn't a new idea. Uh, Actually, Jesus is picking up on a theme in Scripture that's very prominent. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, Moses told us uh, that, that God had promised that there would be two peoples. There would be the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's only two categories of people. You're either in Adam or you're going to be in the new Adam, the he that is promised. Uh, Psalm 1 is the, the, the gate to the Psalter. You can't enter the Psalter without passing through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And Psalm 1 presents two people, the righteous and the wicked. Only two ways, only two ways. And Jesus does the same thing as he begins his monumental sermon. Only two kinds of people, the blessed by God and those who have woes pronounced upon them by God. In other words, those who are blessed have God's favor, while those who receive the woes are headed for God's wrath in eternity. Each of these groups is described in four ways. The blessed are described in four ways, and those who have woes over them are described in four ways. Now, the four descriptions are not four different people. They are four descriptions of one person. Four different descriptions of one individual. Now, now pay attention to this. This is important to understand, and if you go wrong here, you go really wrong. (laughs) Jesus is not saying these are the things you do to become a Christian. He's are, he is saying these are the things that are true of someone who has become a Christian. This is what becomes true of you by God's regenerating grace. And these qualities in those who are blessed are what mark every Christian. These are not the description of super-Christians Second-tier Christians, these are the descriptions of every Christian. Also, these are not a pick one or two. (laughs) This is an all or nothing. Either all of these describe you or none of them describe you. If all of these don't mark you in some way, describe you, then you should question whether you are a Christian. This is how radical salvation is. This is what it produces. One person said that the Beatitudes, these these four blessings, are pronouncements of blessing from God. And they're super encouraging. If you're a Christian, these are massively comforting to you. When you see these things in your life, it's kind of a a paradigm shift because it's Jesus, when someone has said, the upside-down kingdom. Because these are things people like, 
they try to avoid all these things, these, these painful things. When people feel guilt, they do all kinds of things to get rid of it. They medicate it or they, they entertain themselves more so that they don't have to think about it. But Jesus is saying, no, lean into that guilt because that is a blessing if you recognize that. And so these are re- very encouraging. Uh, last time I, I gave a somewhat of an outline for this sermon as Luke records it. We pointed out that Matthew, Matthew's account in Matthew 5 to 7 and, and Luke's are probably the same sermon uh, and that Luke's is just much more abridged. And so we looked at the setting of the sermon last time, the, the context in verses 17 to 19. This morning we hope to look at the comfort of kingdom citizens in verses 20 to 26. And then uh, next time, the charity of kingdom citizens in verses 27 to 38, the love that believers show, and then the character of kingdom citizens in the remaining passages, remaining verses. Once again, none of these beatitudes are what is required to become a Christian. They are evidence that one is a Christian. They are the consequences of regeneration. And this is why they are such a comfort. Because though they are painful things, they indicate one's possession of God. I know God. I'm saved. I'm blessed. How do I know? Because these things are true of my life. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is going to say, if these things if these things characterize you, then yours is the kingdom of God. You possess it. So those harmonize because these are the evidence of regeneration. And Jesus is saying, unless you're regenerated, born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so what does it look like in someone's life when God changes them, when he regenerates their heart? Well, we have two profiles here. One which comforts and one which is a call to the unconverted. We have the profile of true believers in verses 20 to 23 and the profile of the cursed in verses 24 to 26. We might call the first the king's citizens and the description of them and then the second the king's curse and those whom the king's curse is for. So let's look at the profile of true believers in verses 20 to 23. What are the kingdom citizens like? Look at verse 20. He lift up his eyes, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, notice first the audience that Jesus addresses. Now, there's a massive crowd there. We pointed out it could be as many as 20,000 people, but notice how Luke and Matthew will do the exact same thing. He will highlight for us the disciples. The disciples are the primary audience that Jesus is speaking to. You know, they say like, when you public speak, know your audience. (laughs) This is the audience that Jesus is directed towards. Now, a lot of people are hearing what he's saying as well. And so these woes are actually going to be likely addressed to, to them, those onlookers as well. But Jesus is primarily focused upon the disciples here. Now, it's vital to see that Jesus begins with blessing. The person marked by these beatitudes is blessed. And they describe a Christian. And so what does blessed mean? What does it mean? Some translate it as happy. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, As long as we understand what we mean by happy. The word includes the idea of favor from God. Favored may be a good way to think about it. Uh, It's the idea of having divine blessing. To be, now, we say blessed all the time, like, you know, hashtag blessed, or I learned when we moved down here that people just say, like, when they, they'll just say, oh, bless, <laughs> oh, bless, you know, they, they say that uh, to, and so we use bless in all these different ways. What does it mean here, though? 
What does it mean here? Well, the idea is divine favor. It's someone who is in the enviable state of divine favor, that God is for you, that he has saved you, and you have the God of the universe approving of you. And so, of course, that's going to produce joy. It's going to produce happiness in you because you're right with your creator. It's going to flow out into everything. Every circumstance is going to be now able to be viewed through that lens. And so, the question now is, what describes the Christian who is favored by God? Well, there's four descriptions. The first is, we might say, this is what describes the person who's favored by God. You are happy when you recognize your condition. You're happy when you recognize your condition. He says, first, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Are you poor? Are you poor this morning? And Jesus is not talking about what your bank account looks like, what your 401k looks like, what your portfolio looks like. He is talking about spiritual poverty. Now, Matthew makes this really easy because Matthew says in his parallel, he says, poor in spirit. So he clearly defines that for us. But what about Luke? We're studying Luke here, not Matthew. (laughs) Well, we can compare the two and that gives us an indication it's probably the same. But also, there's a lot of ways to go about this. In 4.18, Jesus talked about how he came to preach the good news to the poor. And when we studied that, we learned that in that context in Isaiah, it's talking about more than just material poverty. It's talking about those who recognize their desperate condition before God and they look to, to, to God to meet their need. Charles Quarles, which is a fun name to say, he has a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He, he says this, quote, in the Old Testament, the poor are those who cry out to God for help, depend entirely on God's grace to meet their needs, have a humble and contrite spirit, experience God's deliverance, and enjoy his undeserved favor. It's also interesting, David will describe himself in the Psalms as poor. And you're like, well, isn't David the king of Israel? (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure he's like super poor. Uh, But listen to how he talks in Psalm 86. He says in verse one, incline your ear, O Yahweh, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. So David understands here his spiritual poverty apart from God, and that's why he needs grace. Now, we could go on and give more examples, but the point being, the issue is spiritual poverty. There's many in Scripture who are believers who, are, who were spiritually poor and yet very wealthy. Job, Abraham, the patriarchs, David, Solomon, Matthew, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, those who owned homes that the church met in, in the early church, Barnabas, and we could go on and on. So that's clearly not the issue. The issue is how you view yourself spiritually. Now there's, there's a, a few words in Greek for poor, this word for poor is the lowest on the lowest rung. It, it is like, it actually has this idea behind it of the, the, the poor beggar who won't even look at you as he begs. He, he hides his face away from you. It is utterly destitute. And a good word, as many have pointed out, is bankrupt. Bankrupt. He's saying happy are the spiritually bankrupt. 
Now, the reality is everyone is spiritually bankrupt, objectively. And yet what Jesus is communicating is that blessed are those who have seen this, who recognize this, that they are truly bankrupt. It's a word for total desperation. Nothing to their name. Uh, many years ago, my uncle was, he went to the store and he had all the stuff he was going to buy. I, don't know if, I think it was a grocery store. And he was ready to check out and they rang up his total and he pulled out his wallet, opened it, and there was nothing in there. Because my cousin had taken everything out to get back at his dad for something, you know, and he took all his credit cards, he took his cards out, he took his cash out, he had nothing. And so he couldn't buy it. And so, but all he had to do was go home and get it. Uh, and then he could buy the stuff again. Now, this, is, this is the person who, who can't go home and can't get what they don't have with them. They have no recourse. In, in fact, they realize if they were to stand before God, they would pull out their spiritual wallet, open it, and there's nothing there. And they know it. They know it and they acknowledge it. So do you recognize that this is your spiritual condition before God? Do you realize that you are a bankrupt person? What is this currency that we are bankrupt of? Well, when we look at the accounts, it's righteousness. It's righteousness. We don't have what we need before a holy God. But if you are spiritually bankrupt, then yours is the kingdom of God. As spiritually poor citizens of the kingdom of God, we are citizens of a place we have not yet been. The kingdom we await which is future and earthly, and yet Jesus declares us positionally to be citizens of that kingdom. We are possessors of it, uh, the righteousness and joy and peace that are associated with it as we await for the king. So let me ask you the question, are you spiritually bankrupt? Do you see yourself that way? Have you come to see that? If you have, how comforting that is. Because there are many, if not most people, who do not see themselves as spiritually bankrupt. They do not view themselves that way. So if you see yourself that way, that is a gift from God to accurately assess yourself. And so be happy, be encouraged. God is working in your life. He has worked in your life to show you that. And so that's why it's meant to make you happy to say, this is backwards. I, I have nothing, but I'm blessed. That means I'm blessed. It leads to joy. If you felt the bankruptcy of your soul, you should be thrilled. So you're happy when you recognize your condition. Secondly, you're happy when you are ravenous for righteousness. You are happy when you're ravenous for righteousness. Look at the beginning of verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. You notice that Jesus says now, Hungry now, presently. And of course, Jesus is not talking about physical hunger here. That's a great metaphor, though, for what he is talking about. It's a powerful way to describe longing, a great desire, a need, a longing for something. Matthew, in his account, Matthew 5, 6, gives further details in this one. He says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, we are hungry we get hungry. Maybe you're hungry now. Don't think about it. <laughs> uh, but we are rarely starving. In fact, I don't think I've ever been starving. 
in my entire life. I've talked like I've been starving, like I'm starving, you know, but I don't think I've ever been starving. But those who, who, who read this would understand, have a greater appreciation for what starving was like. And there's many stories in the Old Testament when a city is being besieged and people are genuinely starving and that's how you'd win. They would give up. Uh, people are debating in 2 Kings 6 about whose babies they're going to eat because they're so desperately hungry. It is this ravenous hunger. And so what is this a longing for? It's a longing for a right standing with God. This person is starving for righteousness. Ravenous for righteousness. I have to be right with God. How can I be right with him? I mean, this was Martin Luther's experience. Uh, he wasn't yet converted, but God began to work in his life. And he, so, he was trying by all of his own efforts, sleeping outside in the cold, wearing uncomfortable clothing, trying to uh, show God how serious he was because he knew he needed to be right with God. And he had this mentor, Johann von Staupitz. And oh, you can remember his name because he would tell Luther to Staupitz. You know, Luther, stop it. You're, you're trying too hard. <laughs> you know, you, you need to give up this, these efforts. And, and eventually Luther came to realize that the striving he was doing was for a righteousness of his own. And he needed to look outside of himself for an alien righteousness. It's been said that most people believe that the problem is outside of them and the solution is to be found inside of them. But the Bible reorients that to say that the problem is inside of me. I am the problem, and the solution is outside of me. It is an external righteousness. It's an alien righteousness that God gifts to those who believe in Christ. These are desperate conditions, bankrupt and starving, but for those who have this aching longing for God's righteousness given to them, they will be satisfied. This is a future promise. You will have what you long for. Now, theologically, we know that those who believe are declared to be righteous positionally now. Just like those who are spiritually bankrupt, positionally, theirs is the kingdom of God. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right now, theirs positionally is righteousness. That's how God views them. And then we begin to pursue righteousness more and more. But that satisfaction is complete when God perfects us in glory. We call it glorification. But not only that, there's more to glorification. There's more to this satisfaction. There's many passages about the kingdom of Messiah that speak about a banquet and feasting. And that's not just like spiritual. Don't spiritualize stuff that's physical in the Bible. That's an actual feast because we have a resurrected body to eat real food with real people. And so this is all encompassing. This is a glorification of our bodies to be able to enjoy all the blessings that God has for us. Do you long to be right with God? Then you will be satisfied on that day. Is that you? Are you starving for a right relationship with God? And do you long for more of God? I hope you're realizing that these are not just like one-time longings and realities for the Christian. These are ongoing. We don't go, yeah, I was spiritually bankrupt, but now I'm actually pretty great. You know, it's like, now, if we're thinking rightly, we say the bank account is overflowing, but it's not mine. It's Christ, right? Christ's righteousness. But if, if I'm thinking about myself, I'm still bankrupt. I'm relying upon Christ all the way. 
And our hunger doesn't end. Oh yeah, okay, I'm good. I don't need to ever think about Jesus ever again. You know, it's like, no, our longing increases because we come to see who he is. We want more of him. So if you hunger this way, you are blessed. What a comfort that should be. Dear Christian, (laughs) be happy. Rejoice. Let us see it on your face that you've come to see, oh, this longing God has put into my heart. It would never be there apart from him. I tell you, many have never felt this hunger. Third, you're happy when you have remorse for your sin. You're happy when you have remorse for your sin. Look at the middle of verse 21, or the second part. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Once again, he says, now. Now in this life, right now. Weep, it refers to sorrow. It's a profound sorrow. And so just how backwards is this? Happy are you who weep? Blessed are you who weep? What what are you talking about, Jesus? What is the cause of this weeping? Well, it's related to the other two. These are all connected. If you see yourself as bankrupt and you have this longing to not be bankrupt, but to be right with God, then you mourn that which causes you to be bankrupt. You mourn your spiritual condition. You mourn your sin. You have grief for sin and over sin, both yours and others. When God is not honored, you grieve, whether it's in your life or in others, because you value God. All of these first four are Godward. They're so God-focused, whereas the second four are so self-focused. James, in his letter, which is an early letter written, um, he loves to allude to the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a, a lot of evidence that can be brought forward for that, but, but just listen to this. Here's an example in James 4, 9 to 10. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Sound like Jesus? Yeah. And clearly here, he's talking about this idea of humbling ourselves because of our sin, mourning our sin, weeping over it, seeing our wretched condition. Joel, the prophet, and the minor prophets, he says in Joel 2, 12 and 13, this is like one of the best verses on repentance in the Old Testament. Joel says, yet, yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He is concerned that it not just be a showy kind of remorse, as Paul will talk about that. People make a show of it, how, how distraught they are, but they're not truly repentant unto life. Here's another passage, a a glorious passage, when God saves and restores Israel in the future, from our perspective. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, notice what accompanies their regeneration as a nation. In verse 10, chapter 12, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Haddon Ramon 
in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and the wives of, uh, by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself. And he actually is going to go through the tribes and just say, they're going to weep, they're going to weep, that tribe's going to weep, that tribe's going to weep, they're going to mourn. And it's trying to show every, nation, every tribe of Israel is going to repent and they're going to evidence it through their mourning over what their sin did to the Messiah. They're saying, our sin is the reason for the Messiah's death and we've rejected him. And so this is what happens to the person who God is at work in. They mourn their sin. Have you ever been brought to mourn over your sin? To grieve over it? Even young people who, who've been saved at an early age, though they may say, well, what about me? At some point in their lives, because these are ongoing, they will experience this as well. They will see later as they grow older and they sin against the Lord, how they grieve over their sin. They mourn over it. This is a quality of all believers. Now, Paul, it's very important, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look there for a second, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11, Paul makes an incredibly helpful distinction. 2 Corinthians 7, 10, he says, for godly grief, it's like this is Charlie Brown, this is good grief, right? Uh, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's two kinds of grief, two kinds of remorse, we might say. One is saving, the other is damning. Now, it's not our, it's not our tears that save us. Let me just qualify it, it, it is our looking to Christ and, and looking away from ourselves. But I guess we could say it like this. One of these griefs evidences true conversion and the other does not. And, and here's the difference. Paul then explains in verse 11 what true godly grief looks like. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This earnestness, it's like a, it's a conviction. It's, you, you see it rightly. A contrast this with worldly grief that just despairs over sin. The godly, the, the worldly grief just, just is in despair. They're like, oh, I'm so terrible, I'm so terrible. But they don't see past that to the work of salvation that God has produced. Uh, also, he says, what eagerness to clear yourselves. And he doesn't mean here like, you know, just get out under the consequences or whatever. This idea of clear yourself and in eagerness is you want to deal with the sin, like, you've come under the conviction, godly grief says, I gotta deal with this. I cannot live any longer with this sin undealt with. It has to be dealt with. Whereas the worldly grief looks at their sin and they, would, they just want to get it over with. They just want to be vindicated. Maybe they blame other people. Uh, if you just knew what my circumstance was, you would understand why I did this. They downplay their sin. But the person who's truly grieving their sin goes, I did it all, I'm responsible, I gotta clear this up, whatever it takes. And then he says, what indignation. Here, this is anger, this is anger about your sin. But worldly grief is not angry at sin so much as it's, it's fearing the loss of reputation. What are people gonna think of me now? That's what it's focused on. It's self-focused. Then he says, what fear? What fear? This is fear of God. It produces this great fear of God within them. Whereas a, God, a worldly sorrow is concerned about what men think. They're fearing men. 
Oh man, what's going to happen? What will people think of me? Then he says, what longing. I mean, this is a, a desire to be restored. It's a desire to get it out there, to, to be cleansed. Whereas the other person, they just, they just want to get over this. You know, as one person said, can't can we just forget about this? Can't we, just, can't we just forget about this? The person who's truly repentant says, I want to bear up under it, whatever it means. And then finally, he says, what punishment? What punishment? Justice. The, the person who's truly mourning their sin, they believe in God's justice. And they say, God, whatever it is, whatever I deserve for this, bring it, Lord. Because that's justice. They want to see sin punished. Whereas the, the worldly sorrow, they're not looking for that. The person with worldly sorrow is much more concerned about other people than they are about God. You see this occur over and over again. Joseph, when he's tempted with Potiphar's wife, he says, how could I do this evil thing and sin against, you'd expect him to say, Potiphar, right? Because it's like, it would be a sin against, but he says, against God. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, the prodigal son comes back in Luke 15 and says, I've sinned against heaven, that's a, that's a way to refer to God, and against you. He sees the priority against God. And so, which of these characterizes you? Is this the ongoing pattern of your life of a mourning over your sin? The believer wants God to be honored in their life and in the lives of others. And when he is not, they mourn. They mourn. Paul encourages the, the, the Corinthians. He says, in all these things, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. I think what he's saying is, you don't have worldly sorrow. I've seen you. It's, it's, been, it's been proven that you truly have repented. Now, when you're talking to someone and they weep and they cry, you just don't know immediately. Now, you, you might be encouraged that they are remorseful, but time will tell, right? You can only say that. You can only say, when someone's repenting over their sin, you can just say, time will tell. And that's not like a skeptical thing. It's a very hopeful thing. But you just don't know. You just don't know worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. But you can look at these things and say, over time, what are they saying? How are they responding to their circumstance and their sin to determine where they're at and for your own heart as well? What is the promise for those who weep now? Matthew says they'll be comforted in his account. Luke says you shall laugh. You shall laugh. Weeping now, laughing later. When you're in heaven or in the kingdom, you're going to look around and you're just going to be like, what? I'm here? This is incredible. How am I here? I don't have anything to get me here. I, I, I'm completely here by grace. You're like, ah, this is incredible. Can you believe this? Look at you. You're here? <laughs> How did you get here? It's like, you know, and me too. And, and we're just going to laugh over this. I mean, how are we here? It is going to be such a thrill. What a comfort. And this is actually really well pictured uh, for Israel in Psalm 126. Psalm 126, it's a song of ascents. And um, it says this, when Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. They're like, are we dreaming here? Verse two, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Yahweh, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Here's the joy that comes 
Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Have you ever been mourning over your sin? Felt the grief and the pang of sin? Then be comforted. You will laugh. You will laugh. How blessed you are to have mourned for your sin. What a comfort. God has renewed the the feeling in your heart again to feel how grievous sin is. That's a gift. Many have deadened nerve endings. They don't grieve their sin as they ought. They grieve its consequences, what it's done to their reputation, but not what it's done to their relationship with God. Fourth, you are happy when you were rejected for your commitment to Christ. You are happy when you were rejected for your commitment to Christ. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate, hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Luke uses four verbs here to describe this rejection. And this is the longest one. It's the one last, so it's for emphasis. The first three are really about how we view ourselves before God. This one is about how the world views us because of our relationship to God. And he says, those who hate you, this means like detesting, exclude you, the idea of removal or separation from contact, revile you, it's like finding fault in a way that demeans, or it's a mocking, and then spurn your name as evil, to speak evil of you. You think of uh, the early Christians were given that name, that title, probably as a, as a, a slanderous thing, little Christ or something like that. Uh, one writer pointed out in, in secular Greek, this is used of hissing an actor off stage. Now, the nature of this practically, um, people who don't follow Christ will find a lot of different reasons that are, we might say, not directly about Christ, but certainly are explained by our relationship to Christ to marginalize Christians for so it may not be as simple cut and dry as, well, you're a Christian, so I hate you, right? It's going to be, what are the ramifications, the implications of you living out your Christian life in daily life? That is what's going to offend. That's what's going to cause reviling. It's going to be something like, you won't use the pronouns that I want you to use, and so you're a hater. But why won't Christians use the pronouns that people want to be used? Because we are truth-tellers. We won't lie to people. We want to be the, the one person in their life who never lied to them about the true state of their condition. So that if and when there is fallout, they can know, here's the one who always told me the truth. We're truth-tellers. And so it'd be stuff like that. It's, it is marginalization for things that are, because of our commitment to Christ, this is how we act. And it's often in those ways that we are ridiculed or rejected. And this is the same for Jesus. Um, they had all kinds of accusations that were not true of him. Like, people will say of you, well, you hate people because you believe this. And that is a lie because it's actually, I love people and that's because, that, and, and I want to tell them the truth. But Jesus, they made up all kinds of stuff. He's a glutton and, you know, and they, they said he wants to destroy the temple and all these things and they're just making stuff up. But it was because they hated his person. Now, notice why this rejection is occurring. All this is done, it says, on account of the Son of Man. 
This isn't a generic hatred from others. This is specific to being a Christian. This is marginalization because you associate with the Son of Man. Have you ever experienced this kind of rejection because you're a Christian? It's like you share your worldview and it's like, what? Creates distance in some way. We'll see later that when those who have the woes, when they share their worldview, it's like, hmm, that's really profound. That's really interesting. They're accepted. Now, if you say, well, I don't know. I've, I've never experienced any kind of marginalization, any kind of pushback. That should lead to a question. Have I ever made known Christ to people? Have my worldview of being a Christian ever permeated outside of me gathering with the church on Sunday? If it hasn't, then there should be a question of, is this blessing true of me? Because Christians just, they talk about Christ. Christians' worldview has changed, and it, it, it eventually comes into conflict with the way the world thinks. You know, all of us wish we talked about Christ more, we wish we showed the gospel more, but all Christians do talk about the faith and do talk about Christ. And so, if there's no marginalization, the question is, well, does anyone know that you believe these things? Does anyone know, does it impact your life Monday to Saturday and not just Sunday? One writer said this, you are baking soda poured into the vinegar of the world. If no reaction happens, then you are not what you say you are. Now, to be sure, he's not saying that we don't, you know, you may have a family member, a friend who is not a Christian, you share the gospel with them, and they love you because your family or your friend, uh, that's not what he's talking about here. Or elders, qualifications, they, may, they must be well thought of by outsiders, right? So the, obviously there's some nuance here of what he's trying to say. But the issue is when you present the truth of Christ and the implications of that, what's the response of people? Is it gonna be to accept you or is it going to cause them to hate you in some way and reject you? The answer is it's gonna cause them to reject you. What should your response be to this? What should be your response? Well, notice the only commands in, are found in this section. These are just statements up to this point. Verse 23 gives us two commands. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice. Notice that he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. It's actually... It's both an internal emotion and an external expression, right? This isn't like, I've got the joy, 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 joy. It's down in my heart. It's way down, down in my heart. I know you can't see it, but it's there, you know. Don't you want to be like me? You know, it's like, no, that's not how Christians are. It is, yes, a profound internal joy, but he's saying, leap for joy, leap for joy because you're a Christian. What did you expect? Rejoice. Notice that he says rejoice in that day. He's saying the moment you're rejected by the world is the moment you rejoice and leap for joy. When it comes into your realization you're, that, wait a minute, this isn't just like, you know, I was being a, a, an unkind person. This is like, totally related to Christ, my belief in Christ. That's why this is happening. You go, 
Wow, that's so great. That's so cool. And the world goes, what is wrong with this person? <laughs> like, what? And that's what happened with the apostles. I mean, it's just example after example after example. They're flogging them. And in that day, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. Listen, I mean, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I just work for a nonprofit. And, <laughs> but I would venture to say that some may lose their jobs in the next 10 years because of their positions on views and, and, uh, and things. Maybe less than that. Because the way our world is going to hold beliefs that are consistent with biblical teaching are more and more being viewed as hateful, as things that we must marginalize these people. We've been a long time in enjoying many freedoms, but we got to expect this. And when it happens... We have to be the people who go, praise God, this is great, I'm a Christian, <laughs> and my reward is great. Look at, he gives you three reasons, actually. One is more implied, the other two are explicit. Here's why you rejoice in that day. It, it indicates that you belong to God. Y you are blessed, right? It shows whose side you're on, and isn't that great? I mean, you lost your job, but you're like, Man, I'm going to have a lot of jobs in the kingdom because I'm a kingdom citizen. God is going to care for me. Church is going to care for me, help me. Second, you will be rewarded in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. And what's the nature of this reward? Well, much could be said. You should read Daniel 7. This is where the Son of Man language comes up. It is no mistake that Luke records this statement of Jesus for, on account of the Son of Man. Because when you read, we don't have time to do it. Don't tempt me. In, in Daniel 7, the Son receives a kingdom and he's going to return and, and reign. But also, it talks about how the sons of the kingdom, those who are related to the king, who are believers, they are being persecuted on the earth and dying. But when the king returns, they get the kingdom. They reign in the very place where they were persecuted. So Jesus has to return and be vindicated in the realm on the earth where he was rejected. And because we're connected to Christ, we also must be resurrected to reign on the earth. That's the martyrs in Revelation. They're saying, how long, O Lord? And God is going to resurrect them. They're going to reign. We're going to reign on the earth. And that's the ultimate vindication. So he's giving you powerful reasons to say, whatever you lose right now, it is going to be repaid back to you so much more. I mean, Jesus even says that later in Luke. Whether it's farms or family, you are going to receive back so much more because this is what the Son of Man does for those who are related to him. Third, it indicates you're in good company. You're in good company. For so their fathers did to the prophets. This is what happened to the prophets. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16 but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people until there was no remedy. Does this describe you? If so, you have great cause for comfort and rejoicing. This is the Apostle Paul's uh, testimony in Philippians 3. He once viewed himself as having all these accolades. Oh, I was this and I was that. But he says rejoice. He starts by saying rejoice. And then he says, but I counted all as loss. All in the loss column. What does that sound like? Bankruptcy. 
that I might have the righteousness of Christ. That's a longing for righteousness. He's mourning his sin. And then he says, and that I may share in his sufferings. I think Paul knew about the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yeah, and that was his testimony. But not only was Paul marked by these four descriptions, he also warned against those same things that Jesus does in the woes. And these go much faster because they're just the opposite. They're the flip side of this. The profile of the cursed. These woes are not, Jesus is not saying like, oh, I feel so bad for, for them. It's like, it, it is a, it's a word in the Old Testament and in the New for judgment. These people are under divine curse, divine judgment. They are describing those who are headed to hell. He is saying, in essence, you are damned to hell if these are true of you. And so we might read it like this. First, you are cursed when you are self-righteous. Look at verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This word but is a strong contrast. It, it is to match each of the Beatitudes and be opposite. And so if rich is the opposite of poor, the context we're talking about is spiritual poverty. So if you're not spiritually bankrupt, you're self-righteous. And this is beautifully pictured in, by Jesus later in Revelation 3, verse 17. He speaks to the church in Laodicea and he says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There's a kind of rich that is a fake rich. You know, it's like when people, they have nothing, but they live on loans and credit cards and they are like, wow, they, they're really wealthy. But they don't have any money. It's all borrowed capital. There's a lot of people living that way spiritually. They are spiritually bankrupt, but they don't see themselves that way at all. What does he say of those in this condition? He says, you've received your consolation. It's kind of like a technical word. That's like, if you got services from someone and then you pay them, it's, they give you something like a receipt. It's like, oh yeah, paid in full. The job has been done. That's it. It's like, you got paid. You got everything paid. It's like Jesus says, you know, you've received your reward already if you want to do your righteousness before men. Paid in full. Everything that you're going to get that's quote-unquote good is all going to be now. But you are going to, in the next one, suffer greatly. You've received your consolation. You got paid already. All of your good things come now. Notice, secondly, you are cursed when you are self-sufficient. You are cursed when you're self-sufficient. Verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. This refers to those who are self-sufficient. And Jesus illustrates this later in Luke chapter 16. And he tells a parable. And in verse 19, he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember. What haunting words. Child, remember. That you in your lifetime received good things, your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, you have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This man gets nothing. He had it all. He got paid in full. And he was self-indulgent. He cared nothing about his relationship with God. No sorrow, no grief over sin. Shriner describes him as the laughter of the uncaring and selfish rich, those who are successful and happy, but also self-absorbed and narcissistic carefree, self-indulgent, and they'll long for their needs to be met in hell, but they will not be. Notice the doubling for emphasis, weeping and gnashing of teeth is how hell is described by Jesus of all people. And notice finally, you are cursed when you are self-focused or self-seeking. Verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Once again, Jesus is contrasting this woe with the corresponding beatitude. Notice what he does. Believers are hated and they're related and persecuted and they're related to the prophets, the true prophets who spoke God's word. Whereas these who have the woe against them, unbelievers, are popular and loved and they're related to the false prophets of old. People love to have their ears tickled. They love preachers who will tell them everything is okay. But they're associated with those who were false prophets. In fact, listen to this. Listen to Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, verse 10. Or verse 9. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of Yahweh, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That's what the people were saying. Don't tell us the truth anymore. Tell us illusions. Tell, don't tell us about Yahweh. Don't tell us about the Holy One of Israel. We don't want to hear about that. Same thing in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 5.31. Jeremiah 5.31. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. And then he says this. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? And finally, in Micah, Micah chapter 2, verse 11, if a man should go about and, uh, and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Wow. 
the preacher of self-indulgence, do whatever you want. It's okay. You can be a Christian and do that. That's the preacher for this people. They would love you. And so Jesus is saying, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. When you share your thoughts and your worldview, everyone goes, yeah, that's great. Wow, so affirming. (laughs) Or whatever they might say. But it is so contrary to the truth. Those who love the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Which one describes you? Two people. Jesus preaches the sermon. He begins by saying, you're in one of these two categories. Either God has shown his grace to you and this is the evidence of it, or you're under God's curse and this is the evidence of that. If you find no connection with the first four, then you are among the second four descriptions. And this is a call to repent, to return to the Lord, not just superficially, but from the heart, to say, God, I'm bankrupt. I got nothing. My sin is against you, you alone. God, I need you to provide what I don't have. And I've come to see it is only found in Christ. Lord, I look away from myself. Whatever this means, I don't care. I have to be right with you. Whatever the world says about me, whatever others say, I must have Christ. And if this is you, if this does describe you, yeah, not perfectly, of course. But if this describes you, oh, you are blessed. Oh, you are blessed. Be comforted, dear Christian. Rejoice, leap for joy. Because your reward is great. You're in good company. These are the blessings Jesus has. This is the comfort of kingdom citizens. May this upside down kingdom be the way we think. May it be so contrary to the world and yet so common to us. This is the way things actually are. This is the way things work. That where the world would want to avoid these painful things, we embrace them as evidence that God has chosen us. He's given us a new heart. And we have joy because of it. Father, thank you for such a powerful introduction to the Lord Jesus' sermon that categorizes people this way. And, And Lord, we all would have your woe over our lives if it were not for your grace, if it were not you making known to us our bankruptcy, if it were not you making known to us our our need for righteousness, causing us to hunger for that, if it were not for you, Lord, causing us to see the offense that our sin is, we would have never grieved over it. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us joy in that day, whenever that day comes, to recognize, oh, I'm a Christian. You have saved me, God, because the world does not have a place for us. But we do have a place in the new world. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.